Hello, you wonderful people. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up to our Patreon account. The link will be in the description of this podcast, but you can also go to patreon.com forward slash Pod. For as little as four euros a month, you can help us out and become part of our little community. You'll get early access to all of the pods and you'll also get a monthly newsletter from myself and Jim. So basically two monthly newsletters where we'll talk about stuff that's going on in our own personal lives and what we've been thinking about slash inspired about. We also are asking you guys to get involved with the podcast so you can send in questions for our upcoming guests or you can suggest to us people or topics you would like us to interview and explore further. Um, We love you. We hope that you love us and hopefully just by giving us as little as four euros a month, that's basically, it's not even a pint in London that you can help us become an even better podcast. Thank you all. Hello friends, welcome back to the podcast. This week we have Ronnie Abergel, who is an author and founder of the Human Library Organization, where instead of books, real people with real stories are on loan to readers. At the Human Library, people have the opportunity to talk with others who are often discriminated against, to find out more about their lives and to get a better idea of what's it actually like to be them. A man who is deeply committed to facilitating communication and making our society less judgmental place, Ronnie started the Human Library at a festival in Denmark 20 years ago and it is now located in 85 countries across the world. This conversation covers a lot, including the collective intolerance of the intolerant, our lack of curiosity and the power of conversation. We also discussed the process of changing people's opinions and perspectives on issues and how this usually takes an extended period of time. And for me, anyway, this serves as inspiration for having conversations with people we disagree with. We won't change their minds immediately and vice versa, but there is, if there is curiosity and respect, greater understanding can be achieved. If you guys want to learn more about Ronnie and the Human Library, please check the link below in the show notes. And finally, thanks to Ronnie for giving us his time. Seb and myself really enjoyed this. All the best, guys. Uh, hello, friends. <laughs> Welcome back to the Earthly Delights podcast. This week, our guest is Ronnie Abergel. Ronnie Vassar, what's the crack? How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. It's great. You know, you're our first Danish guest. Really? Yes. Well, I hope to make a lasting impression so we'll have many Irish coming to Denmark to visit. Absolutely. We'll expect references to Huga. Oh, really? True. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, there, was, there, there was an article not too long ago in in one of the Irish newspapers talking about Huga, and then it got all Irish people were talking about it for a few weeks, so maybe it might gain some traction. It's a bit of a, you know, I don't know if it's not just a, a word in Danish for actually the same thing that happens at your place when you guys get cozy, you know, and you get together to, to relax, have a couple of drinks, chat it up and just chill and be cozy. I think it's the same thing. I see this across cultures, but in Denmark, it has its own word. It's hygge and Danish hygge. It's difficult to get to a point with Danish people where they actually want to hygge with you. But if you get there, then you know you're in a good position. Okay. And can <laughs> I just ask, do you, yeah. 
Can I just ask, do you say that? Do you say, do you want a hygge together? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you'd say something like, uh, skal vi ikke hygge og hænge ud? Should, don't you want to hygge and hang out? You know? <laughs> or hang out and hygge is probably the way you'd, you'd translate it properly. So yeah, it's a figure of speech. Uh, and okay. what are you going to do tonight? I'm just going to hygge, you know? I'm going to hygge with my friend. I'm going to hygge with my friend. So don't, don't mistake, there's nothing sexual in it at all, in fact. Uh, or at least it could be an implied... Well, it could be an implied reference. You could use it in that context too by saying to somebody, you know, in a bit of a cheeky way, going, you want to come to my place and hygge? <laughs> Then that could, that could sound like more than just hanging out and eating popcorn. <laughs> oh, so, so in Denmark, would they say Netflix and hygge? <laughs> yeah. They actually mean... Uh, they actually, well, I'd be... I wouldn't let my girlfriend go over to somebody's place for Netflix and hygge. Because you never know what that really would would entail. <laughs> But years back, it would be, don't you want to meet for coffee? <laughs> and it didn't really mean coffee. <laughs> Now they use Netflix and Hugo. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. Um, right. anyway, yeah, so let, let's get let's get Scandinavia. You know, always useful. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for clearing that up. The the first thing I wanted to ask was. Um, Can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you became uh, interested in the in the field that you work in, and also how then did the the human library come about? But yeah, we like to learn more about the guests. Thank you. Well, I'm 49. I was born in Denmark. I, I always had an interest in in my fellow man, in the sense not that I could save the world or anything, but you know, I'm interested in in people who have who are different from me, and I I, I like to try and understand their way of being in the world and it started as just childish curiosity with people you saw on the street that were significantly different or raised questions that popped to your mind and you'd point fingers and your mom would tell you, shh, can't do that. Stop pointing fingers. So I, I think I've always had a natural curiosity also because I'm mixed myself in the sense that my mom is Danish, but my dad is not from Denmark. And so, so I always felt a little bit of a, a foot in each kind of culture or camp. In the sense, it's not that I didn't grow up in the Danish culture and it's my native language and it's my country and it's it's everything for me in that sense. But my dad's culture also somehow impacted me and made me feel part of something else at the same time. So I'm part of more than just one country as my cultural identity. But I also sense that difference in me with many other Danish people because I wasn't exactly as blonde as many of them or had blue eyes. And I, I got some discrimination when I grew up. I felt some racism. Wasn't terrible, but I felt it. I had friends from other countries that, were, that felt it a lot more because they were not born in Denmark. So they had that big language barrier I never had, which really means a lot because when you're coming out and you're talking with a distinct accent away from the majority everybody can tell you're not from around there isn't it and it gives you away immediately and back then in the 70s 80s that was enough that was enough for people to have a lead into mobbing or bullying or excluding you because hey i don't understand what they're saying you know we can't let's not invite them uh it's going to be a bother So I think, you know, we all have some cultural curiosity, but the big uh, sort of wave of, of foreign labor coming in, guest workers coming in late 60s, 70s here, kind of disrupted the homogeny of the Danish society a little bit and created a new, you could say, 
type of community <laughs> with, with a lot more diversity and slowly eroding some of the cohesion because we're not all the same anymore like we perhaps thought we all were until 1965 or 1970. So a lot has changed for Denmark, but, uh, but I thought, hey, let's not be afraid of the new. Let's try and understand it. Maybe there's nothing to be afraid of. At least if we sit down and try and understand, we can decide. We can make up our mind. But don't make up your mind from a distance without getting to know people. I mean, ask yourself, would you want to be cut off from opportunities in your country, in your life, in your community, just because somebody didn't give you a break to show, to at least give you a chance to, to show who you were. I mean, it's, it's all right that you feel that I'm not the right fit for you, but at least give me a chance to show you who I am first and then decide if you think you and I could be a fit, whether it's for work, working relationship, friendship, or just friendly neighbors, you know, kicking it across the talking while we're fixing our lawns. You know, I, I see you on your driveway or something. So, so it's all a matter of, I think, in individually being more courageous and curious about the diversity around us. And I always was. I was the type who'd walk up to people on the street and stop them and say, hey, what is this? This is different. It makes me think about stuff. I'm so curious. Sorry, I don't mean to stop you or bother you. I'm, I'm always trying to be very polite. But I'm also very sincere, so they know I'm not there to frown upon them or, or begrudge them anything, but rather because I'm, I'm really curious to understand. And ask yourself this, who does not want to be understood? That's a good question, isn't it? See, there you went silent because you don't have the answer, but you do. Nobody in this world <laughs> to be understood. It's plain and simple. And so imagine that you've been misunderstood for maybe even large parts of your life. You were deselected in physical education or sports at school. You were not invited to the different parties or... You had only limited access to social relations because of a certain circumstance about you. So you paid a high price during your life for being who you are, something you cannot change. Then imagine now you're being invited to the human library. You're going to conferences, festivals, workplaces, public libraries, universities, community centers, and talking to people about who you are in helping them better understand who you are so that others like you and yourself too shall not be facing the same discrimination and exclusion uh, that, that, that you have. So literally hoping that we can sensitize our community to be more understanding and inclusive. And this is the library to do it. This is the place to engage and have that conversation with your fellow man whom you might think you have something against. I wanted to ask, you know, I think the project that you have going there with the human library is amazing, but there, there's two, two of the big, well, the big things that for me that come up when I, when I think about it and when I've heard you speak are, how do you get the guests? Like, how do you get the people that, as you call them, the books? And mm -hmm. on the flip side, how do you get, like, I don't know if we can um, release this so I'll, I won't reference the, the station, but you're going to go onto an American station, which would not, we would see, would seem it doesn't lend itself to your type of audience as you, as you said before so so how do you get the people who are you know w w maybe have their these bigotries and have these stereotypes and are comfortable in in having them how do you get how do you mm -hmm. get them to come over to the human library i mean i guess we should start first that's a two-part question i do hate two-part questions because people always end up answering one and not the answer so if, let's just start with the first how do you get a guest so um i, I watched your ted talk 
uh, on YouTube and you've got you so one of the people that you've got on there is a guy for people who haven't seen like they can imagine tattooed from head to toe and then they've all they've also got like the horns put in that so like it looks like they have horns coming out of their skull and so on and so forth how do you get someone like that to come in because my my first take is wouldn't that person feel like they're almost at a zoo, like they're being gawped at, you know, like these people are the normal folk, quote unquote, are coming to look at him and go, wow, what's happened here? Why, why are you like this? Yeah, yeah exactly. Rare How species. do you get them to it's, go, it's, actually, so no, you know what? Come. It's, uh, it's, it's rare species on exhibition. It's the social exactly. circus. It's yeah. People in a cage, you know, which we did in the past. Did you know we put people in amusement parks from other continents and exhibited mm. them, put people on exhibition. Yeah. That's yeah. no more than 120 years back, guys. You had families living inside amusement parks around Europe from China and Africa on exhibition. Okay? But yeah. that's not what we're doing, but I really appreciate the question. And I think that, plus how do we go beyond the congregation, are two very important questions, and I'd love to answer them. Now, first, how do I get people to become books? Well, word of mouth is now so strong that people volunteer. I return to my initial statement about who does not want to be misunderstood. Now, having lived with a disability most of your life, this is a chance to maybe turn what has been a disability into a competence, into a qualification, into a positive part of your identity where people are going to appreciate you as an open book to help us understand. Yeah? You're going to be appreciated. So books come on their own. I barely have to do anything anymore. But in the past, I would stop people on the street. I would reach out to special interest groups and ask them to yield volunteers with HIV, or volunteers that had a, a different gender orientation, or other volunteers that, that we could use as open books. And I would use my own personal network, the original book collection in 2000. 25 of those 75 books were people I knew personally so that I have from my already existing network. Others I recruited off the street, like one young boy with a mohawk and piercings all over his face. I took him off the street. He was 16 years old. I said, you want to be part of the human library? I'll take you to this festival. All expenses paid. And he's like, sure, what do I have to do? I said, you have to be an open book about what you did to yourself here and why. Tell us, answer questions about what you did and why, and everything will be fine. And he's like, sure, I'm happy to answer questions. 20 years later, he came to our 20th anniversary. He's now an adult, educated, family man. You could barely recognize him, but it was such a beautiful thing to see him again. Anyway, I stopped him off the street and I called his mom and asked permission to, to publish him. And she gave me, and it was incredible. But books, I mean, they're motivated by many different, you could say, uh, reasons for coming out. But what I think they all have in common is they have faced unnecessary bias, stigma, prejudice, uh, because of our lack of insight and understanding. And so we're not a library that works for tolerance or accept, uh, works for tolerance or to combat stigma. We're not a combat organization. We're here to see if we can create a safe space where we can reach some kind of understanding. And through that understanding, acceptance. Because who wants to be tolerated? Okay, who wants to be understood and accepted? Go ahead. So that's the path we're on to create a safe space and bring out people with the lived experience. How do we get beyond the congregation? Second part of the question, and we'll get to all of it. We go to schools. 
where teachers made the decision that their students are going to be our readers today. We go to universities, we go to medical schools, we go to colleges, we go to institutes for social workers, where their trainers, their faculty, made the decision that they're going to be readers. It's part of their schooling. They must show up. It's mandatory training, not voluntary. So I'd say amongst all of that, we do get a broad scope of people, but obviously in educational institutions. Next level is workplaces. Now, when you go into a leadership development training program, for example, at Heineken or UGI, if you're onboarded as a new staff in UGI Corporation, you're going to be going through a human library learning experience as part of your onboarding. If you go through leadership training at Heineken, when you reach the module on diversity, equity, and inclusion, a human library module will be part of your training there. So we're definitely reaching people that maybe they wouldn't come to us on their Sunday afternoon with their wife and kids down at the public library. Or they might not run into us at Burning Man or Wilderness or Glastonbury or Essex Book Festival this weekend in the UK. But we might get them through their work. So somehow, one way or the other. Then there's the upcoming podcast, which is not in any way to compare to your great show. But we're going to try and get into a conversation about how to unjudge someone. Something that's really crucial to us and very important and key to the whole mission of our organization. Providing people an opportunity to unjudge someone. Because we all judge. There is no denying it. And at the foundation of our methodology is an acceptance of this fact. We cannot stop judging. The moment you stop judging is the moment you've decided you no longer, you no longer care about your life. Because the judging is about keeping you safe. It's a survival instinct that you cannot switch off. So when you see something significantly different from you, your brain is going to make a risk assessment. And it is so fast that that label is printed and it's put in a little box, yeah? So revisit those judgments. We all have that built-in label printer, and it's printing continuously about our friends, about our neighbors, about strangers on the street, or people we see on TV doing something crazy, like standing on, sub of, on, on, on top of a Brooklyn subway train, uh, driving across the Williamsburg Bridge, doing the subway surfer 10th anniversary for real. It's crazy. And then we judge. We judge. These guys are crazy. Why would they do that, you know? And, and for a moment there, you judge too, Seb. You judge that broadcaster in the U.S. and you judge their viewers. And, and if that's how we're going to progress, all of us, how are we ever going to find common ground, my friend? So we all have to stop judging and allow ourselves an opportunity to, one, not be ashamed of the fact that we do judge. Take responsibility for it. Don't be ashamed. You're not a bad person. We all do it. It's part of your software. If you were a computer program, this was, your, this was an algorithm that you cannot change. You cannot change the code of the human survival instinct. You can heighten your senses or sort of slower them, weaken them. But deep down, your survival instinct is not something that can be suppressed for real. Maybe you can be drunk or drugged and fall in the water and not know how to swim and save your life because you're drunk. But if you're sober, then there's nothing that can suppress your need to survive and navigate to safety, whether it's through traffic or if it's through uh, 
20,000 football fans coming out of the stadium very angry because Ireland just lost 5-0 to Denmark in the World Cup qualifier. Okay? I remember such a scenario. So maybe there were 20,000 angry Irishmen coming out of the stadium in Dublin looking for somebody to beat up. And that's when I took my Denmark shirt off <laughs> and I put my green shirt on. <laughs> and I'm still wearing the green. That's the show. <laughs> we all judge... And we might judge the wrong people now and then. We know it happens. When can, we, when can we revisit those judgments? So I'm trying to reach readers where they are. That's online. That's in their workplace. That's through their social life and festivals, community centers, special events that are going on. That's through your educational institutions, through your high schools, colleges, universities, through kids' events at your public library. And online and through the telly and through the radio. Mm. So if I can get unjudged someone podcast out there, that's going to reach one group of people that speaks to a certain group. Uh, a TV show on Fox new on Fox, for example, would speak to another segment. And so the world is so diverse. We can't expect that just because we start announcing or broadcasting one place, we're going to reach everybody with this message. No, 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 no. This has taken 22 years so far. It'll take another 22 to just get around. So mm. we're good. We're in we're in 80 plus countries. We're slowly gaining a foothold, and COVID actually doubled us in 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 you could say resources because we transitioned to online and made ourselves available to a global audience that in the past we'd have to meet them locally in their mm. community. Now we could embrace them from Bangladesh to New Zealand, to Canada, all in the same session with English as a common working language. So yeah. it's been incredible these past two years to first face extinction for a minute and then find a path forward. And later this month, probably by the time you guys broadcast this, our new software will be available, which means the online human library, a reading on demand service, is going to be out there starting to work its magic. And it's my dream that this can help us scale up our offering. Yeah. And again, be more inclusive, be inclusive of people who don't have access in Alaska or wherever they are, because we don't have a local book depot in their community operating or people who you could say, don't feel comfortable going to the in-person, but rather would go in their safety of their home, using their web camera, and choosing the topic, exactly the topic and the time that they want. That's as safe as we can make it. Uh, and then you could log on and ask your questions. So we're excited about the new software and we're excited about different conversations we're having uh, also in the United States about a potential TV series. So there's some people in, in, I guess, in Hollywood that think that this has the potential to do something on television. And I'm, I'm keen to agree with them. I'm not sure yet exactly what that vehicle could look like, but that's why I'm, I'm visiting Los Angeles end of June to talk to some of these creative people and find out what is the vision that they have and if it aligns with the impact and vision that we have for this library. So it's an exciting time, but obviously everything has its strengths and its weaknesses, and I can't force someone whose heart is full of fear whose heart is full of, 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 of hatred or intolerance towards a certain group, I can't force them to come down and see me and borrow someone yeah. representing that group in the community. I can only recommend and tell you that you will have a greater quality of life if you come down and you challenge your fears. I can promise you 
end of the day, you're going to feel much better than you did when you started. And if this means you can venture out in your community with stronger relations, with greater empathy and with greater understanding for your fellow man, then you're about to be in a much more beneficial position to live your life. Because what can we do with bigger network? More things, isn't it? It's more opportunity. So instead of looking at this diversity as a limitation to your way of life, look at it as a can opener to a whole new way of life where you also have a lot more opportunity. Opportunities you did not yeah. have before the people from Turkey came to Denmark or the people from Vietnam settled in Ireland or who, whoever showed up. Yeah, we just we benefit. All of us benefit from this diversity and it's it's good for us. But we should, you know, obviously be careful with how we engage with other people and culturally respectful in this. But try to be open and courageous and get to know them before you judge. And then if you decide at the end of your process hey, I'm not so keen on this. Fair enough. Yeah, it's a qualified decision to make. I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to say, good on you. You made a qualified choice. You've now decided you don't like Boris Johnson. All right, I'll give him to the next reader. We'll see what they say. No, I'm kidding. You can't borrow Boris Johnson or something like this, but you could borrow a politician or a policeman or a sex worker or journalist or a certain you know, member of a neurodiverse group or somebody with a certain lifestyle, like the body modified we mentioned with all the tattoos and the piercings, you know, and you can question, why did you do this? Why did you get all these tattoos? Uh, aren't you afraid of that people are scared from you or, you know, that you won't be able to get a job or something? And then end of the day, you can decide that it's not for you to have all these tattoos, but good on him that he has them, you know, and it makes us all just more amazing. Ronnie, I, I wanted to ask because I think you're tackling something that socially is probably one of our biggest uh, problems that we're experiencing, which is the fact that we're becoming more and more polarized. The judgments come quicker. They last for longer, it seems. Um, but yet, if, if, I'm, if I'm trying to be a realist, I, there's two, I have two parts of me. One part is, like you said, we all judge. I've made I make judgments on a daily basis, and to some extent, what there may be wrong judgments, they may be correct. But some that, it, like you said, it's inbuilt in as a software, and it's because a lot of times it's for protection, or you're in a social environment. If you're the odd one out, and you see, for example, you see Jim and all his and his mates, you hear them speaking in a, in a thick Dublin accent. You go, oh, they like a laugh, they like a Guinness, blah blah. As it happens, Jim would actually much prefer to take you to the beach and to, and go cold water swimming. You see me, you find out that I'm Italian, you make the stereotype, oh, he'll be a foodie, I'll talk to him about food. That would be the correct assumption. If you talk to me about food, I'll be you're onto a winner, I'll, I'll be your friend immediately. So we make these stereotypes, we make these judgment calls to kind of to get through those barriers, right? Because we can't we unfortunately we don't have enough Stop time to make personal judgments one on one on one, right? But on the other hand, and this is where it always comes, because people, with the, I, I love the conversation about stereotypes because on the one hand, stereotypes come from somewhere. They may might not always be factual, but it comes from somewhere. But then on the other hand, you can't paint everyone from that culture, from that, the way that they look, whatever it may be, with that stereotype. And I wonder how, do, does this in this day and age, how do we maintain both you know how do we go okay look there's a group of irish guys they're probably up for a good laugh 
But actually, let me before yeah. I go in there, let me not all assume that they all drink like Guinness. Do you know what I mean? Let me assume that there might be some who who don't like alcohol, who are alcohol free, or whatever the case may be. How do we do that? Because I find I find it so hard. And even for me, you know, we talk about the UK, for example. And I listen to a Daily Show, um, and it says compassion for the conned, contempt for the con men, and that's in in relation to Brexit. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I'm very anti-Brexit, always have been, right? And, yeah, I, yeah. and the people call up and they talk about how uh, they knew what would happen. They wouldn't have voted for Brexit. They would have turned hey, their vote. But even me, I'm sorry. Yeah. They got sucked. They got lied. And I just get so frustrated because I'm like, oh, I could have told you six years ago what would have happened. So I no, still find it hard to get that compassion. Exactly. And I find it hard to get that compassion. And I, but I know that I should do. I know that someone like Jim would find it easier to come by. So I just, what, how do we get compassion to with the people who were suckered? Of course, they were conned. Yeah, the, the people exactly. who voted for Brexit were, were conned. How can you not feel sorry for them? They brought their country on a on a on a path that is not good for them or for Europe, and and they were suckered by manipulating politicians, power hungry politicians, and it's tr- it the truth of it becomes clearer every day. And I think in the end, it shows that democracy, The one of the, the big challenges is it can be manipulated. It's not fail-safe, this system. It's not foolproof because you can be fooled by the people who say that they're on a, on a mission and they actually lie about the whole idea. So yeah. I think, uh, but I agree with you. We live in a very polarized time. And, and I think we all must ask ourselves, if I'm to deselect you, Seb, or Jim, what is a valid reason to do so? And set the bar high, please. You know, don't be like, because Jim wants to go to the beach and you want to eat. Because you can bring the food to the beach and you can eat together at the beach, isn't it? Don't let it be because Jim wants to have, you know, a discussion about abortion. So you're going to disagree on abortion and you're not going to be friends anymore. Or you're going to disagree on Trump or disagree on Brexit, or disagree on whether you like Cardiff or Liverpool or whoever team, I don't, what, Dunferline, I don't even know any teams from Ireland, I don't think, uh, Fairytown. Patrick yeah, okay, yeah, that's, that's probably one of the few that I've heard of, you know, uh, and is there Rovers or something? I don't know. Yeah, but Shamrock this, Rovers. Yeah, that's the one. I know that yeah. because of the shamrock. But but you know. So anyway, sorry for my lack of football uh, competency on this podcast, and my apologies <laughs> to the Irish listeners. It's not lack of respect for Irish football. Just don't have time to follow all the stuff. But I'm concerned that we navigate uh, and shy away from friends, people we could have great relations with, family members, because of one issue. And of course, there are certain issues that are incredibly important and significant and will divide us. But it seems now it, do, it doesn't have to be really big issues any longer. It's just an excuse to conquer and divide, isn't it? To put people over here and people over there and to expose our disagreements. But how much time are we talking about finding compromises or solutions or a common way forward? We're not spending time on that at all. We're spending all the time talking about how much we disagree. And finding new ways to disagree or new ideas we disagree about and just agreeing to generally disagree, you know? When, when did this become in the interest of mankind, of community, of democracy, of the state, of the city, of anyone? 
that we we spend so much time on agreeing on disagreeing all the time. Let's try and spend time, find ways to find common ground. I don't see them negotiating enough. I don't see them talking enough. I see them talking about each other, but I don't see them talking with each other to find ways forward. Now, what is my expectation as a taxpayer, as a voter? I expect politicians to help find solutions. Now, show me one that can find solutions alone, and I'll show you a bloated person. Because that's what it is. There are no easy solutions found on their own. I didn't create the library on my own. No one person can change the world on their own. We all need to take a responsibility. And I think our politicians are not taking responsibility. And I'm not trying to get political, but I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed in the individuals and their yield for power is so great that they will sell the planet, <laughs> you know, down the tube just for their temporary five minutes of having something to say. We're looking at a lifetime of challenges for generations. And these people are opting for the next four, four years of having a paid salary from the parliament or the state or whoever's putting money in. I can't believe a U.S. senator from Kentucky is one of the richest people in the Senate. Was he rich when he came into the Senate, Mitch McConnell? No. So he became a multi-millionaire from being a senator? Is that why you go into politics so you can have $100 million in the bank? No, it's corrupt. I'm honest. Honestly, we need, to, we need to look at other people to represent us. We need to look at other representation. I'm surely voting for the person that I think is the most credible person and who will stand by what they promised me and not what, you know, no matter how much we disagree or agree, I, the ones that I trust will actually carry through and have the interest of the community at heart, not special interests, which is what this all looks to be. Special interest versus special interest. So where do we go for a neutral conversation? You can go to the human library for one. It's not the only solution and there's no universal truth there, but there is the truth of one person who you engage with who will tell you what their lived experience is and then you do with that information what you want. But think about it, the library is the most neutral institution in our community. It's also the most inclusive. And what do I mean by that? How much does it cost to use the services of the library? It's free. If you want to go to the stadium, you got to buy a ticket. If you want to go to the movies, you need a ticket. If you want to park your car, you need to buy a ticket. If you want to go to the swimming pool, you need to buy a ticket. Everything is pay to play here. Very few things are really free, like the public parks and the beach, some places. And the library. It's free for everybody. Now, who is welcome at a library? Young and old? Yes. Tall and short? Slim, slender, obese, disabled, war veteran, bipolar, homeless? Who is welcome at the library? We'd rather talk about who is not. That's much faster, because everyone is welcome at the library if they can accept one rule, respect the other people's right to be in there and show consideration to that. If you can engage in the space like that with consideration for everybody else's right to be there, then you're welcome to be there. So I don't see anywhere else, <coughs> excuse me, across our cultures, across our religions, across continents, 
I don't see one other institution that in, that is so that we have so much in common. No matter if we're in Zambia, South Korea, Bangladesh, or Dublin, the library serves the same function in all of our cultures. It's a knowledge center. It's a place to share, get informed, connect, and and it's across. And it's six thousand years old or more. And it was for the elite. It wasn't always for everyone, but it is now. And that means we can all meet there. It's one of the few places we could all meet up and connect and learn about each other. So we felt that was a natural place because there is no other more inclusive place. And Ronnie, what do you think are the, of all the, you know, the, the groups of people that you get there and all the individuals? I wonder, and this might be an impossible question. And if so, just uh, I'll let Jim come in with a better question. But um, I wonder if, if you have... Is there like one specific thing that um, people find really hard to get over or have the most uh, stereotypes towards, be that sexual, be that religious, be that racial, be that physical appearance? Is there one that really stands out as like, this is the one that's really, we've really got to tackle hard? Well, I don't know if there's one we got to tackle hard. I think there are many, but I can tell you that each country has their cultural taboos. Now, this would be one of the global ones is the victim of incest. That is always incredibly heavy for readers to even fathom. Yeah. But there are also global bestsellers, like groups that are stigmatized across communities, and that's different groups with different religions. See, in different communities, different groups are stigmatized because of their religion. And the same with gender orientation. Different cultures, different groups are, again, stigmatized. So... I think we have a big we have a big global challenge to save the planet but also to understand that that is the only race you know the race to save the planet the rest of us we're just one people and we need to work together to save this planet so mankind need to get over our differences and work together if we want to have a sustainable future here there's so much that we're doing now that is not sustainable cannot go on must stop. If we don't, the future is ruined. So why do we keep the bickering and the, the hostilities when we're all facing a much greater challenge? It's, it's incredible. But I understand. It's, it's, it's in our nature. And it's in our nature to organize tribally and in communities with people that are like us to feel safe and all that. But, you know, we're global family here. Mankind is a global family. I'm related to you guys. You guys are related to the people in Colombia. We're all interconnected. So the more you, the more you engage in my library, the more you mirror your own humanity in this diversity, the more you're going to understand how universally mankind is connected. And I think once you've read enough books, you come to peace with this. It's happened to me. You come to peace with it. And you feel connected to everybody, even the people who are so different. So I'm not, I don't have any fears. I don't have any apprehensions. I'm cautious about individuals, but I'm open to all the incredible wonders of the world rather than being cautious. Uh, so, so in this sense, I try to give people an opportunity to show me who they are when I have this chance, whether it be in an airport, on a train, or the occasional, you know, happening, you just bump into somebody. I really try to get them to understand them and also give myself, you know, forgive myself for judging because I do it too. And sometimes I'll judge really fast, you know, especially if people do something that could seem offensive to you. 
And maybe you misunderstood what their intention really was. Maybe they didn't mean to barge into you and pour your rum and coke all over your nice newly ironed shirt. Maybe that wasn't on purpose. Maybe you don't have to get very upset. Maybe you forgive the guy and say, hey, man, what happens? Uh, so sometimes we also need to look at our own ability. There was a woman called me. I think this is a great way to illustrate this. Probably a best example. Woman called me. She said, Ronnie, I love the library. She was from the Ukraine years back, long before this situation now. And she says, you're, you're, you're really onto something because we have no tolerance for the intolerant. And then I said, but what does that make us then? The moment we're intolerant of the people who we feel are intolerant, we're in the same boat, aren't we here, fellas? We are in the same boat. And the planet is now the Titanic. And if we don't stop fooling about, we're in a sink. So I think we need to disperse with the local hostilities, find common ground, and start working towards developing solutions that are sustainable. So that's my hope. And, you know, maybe I won't make it on time because it's a big place we're in. But if I spend my time in a meaningful way while I'm here, trying to make an impact, make a better world out of this, you know, it's for me, it's better than selling toothpaste and not to take anything away from selling toothpaste because I'm so grateful somebody will do that so I can get my toothpaste and keep my teeth nice. But it's not for me. I'd rather do this. You know, it's meaningful to me. And I realize I'm still in the same flat 25 years. I'm still driving my old car, not much because it's old. And my bicycle, you know, I live in the, in the most diverse neighborhood in Copenhagen where the property prices never really rise because there's just too much diversity here for this to really become as attractive as the other places where prices skyrocketed, isn't it? So I'm here, most population dense area, people outside my door from Turkey, Somalia, Arabic countries. I had a shawarma with hummus yesterday. I was happy about it. You know, and I feel absolutely safe here, completely safe. I wouldn't move, you know, why would I move? This is the most dynamic place, the most diverse place in my country I can be. Anywhere else, it would just be, wow, like an echo chamber, isn't it? Or a silo with everybody else like me. That would make me uncomfortable, personally. <laughs> so, so here we are, and I think it's up to all of us to decide, even the listeners of this podcast, because all of us that do listen to this podcast judge too. What can we each and every one of us individually do to maybe help make this world a little bit more understanding by ourselves leading the way and trying to be more understanding. Ask those questions. Be courageous. Engage with the people that you might be a little bit apprehensive about or even better, like one of our... We had a reader come in. She lived in, well, in my neighborhood here down the road, actually, in a place where 1,500 people from maybe 60 different countries or more, right? So in her staircase, there are 10 families and the probability is 40 to 60% had a different ethnic background than Danish in this area. They even called it a ghetto at a certain time. So a lot of people from third world countries and other immigrant groups and refugees and others situated in this housing area. She lived there for 10 years. She came all the way downtown to our library to borrow a Muslim. And after 30 minutes, she gave him a big hug. She thanked him for the reading. And she said, I really appreciate this time, but I just can't believe that you're a Muslim. And he looked at her and he was all baffled. And he says, but I answered all your questions, didn't I? And she goes, yeah, 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 you did. It was really good. But you don't fulfill any of my stereotypes. You didn't fulfill any of the negative prejudices. 
uh, because stereotypes aren't necessarily always negative, are they? They could be positive, like the Irish are good for a pint, yeah? So that's not a negative thing, is it? If it's the Irish are always good for too many pints and they don't know how to get home on time, then it's a different discussion. Then it's not necessarily as positive. But this lady, she actually left. Uh, she didn't really believe our book was a Muslim because it did not fulfill any of them. And we've had, you know, other really interesting meetings where people maybe very strongly even disagree. You know, like the free marijuana activist coming in to borrow the police police officer. Or, well, people of different political observation, because we had politicians on our bookshelf too. At public events, we published a, a, a politician from a right-wing party, not one of intolerance speaking, but one very critical of immigration and very often associated with, well, they're just racist, aren't they? Well, let's, let's find out. Let's bring them to the bookshelf. Let's engage. Let's talk about their arguments. Let's not give them a platform to distribute intolerance or hate. That's not what we're for. But let's give them a platform to explain at least who they are. They're, they're being, you know, shot at, being told they're radical, they're extreme, they're this and that. And so in this way, we also publish vegans. You know, some people think vegans are trying to convert the whole world to stop eating meat. And so maybe some vegans are. Maybe some vegans aren't missioning. You know, you'll borrow some of our different vegans and you'll meet different people with different approaches. So there are so many shades of gray. We try to illuminate that. We know nobody, not everyone will have time for it. And listening, listen, reading books is not, everybody reads books. So obviously not everyone will come to the human library. But for the people who do, it's meaningful, it's impactful. And I get letters from, I had a letter last year during COVID, the lockdown, from a reader that borrowed a book in 2000 at the original human library event. Now, this man, 21 years later, wanted to volunteer as a book. We go beyond the congregation. We can't save everybody, but we can bring about focus to certain important conversations. And maybe that can be a starting point to get us away from where we are right now, where we're taking way too much time talking about each other and not enough time to talk with each other. Uh, Ronnie, for, for people who are listening to you and are inspired to kind of maybe take, be, like you said, be a bit more curious, a bit more courageous in terms of future discussions with people that maybe they disagree with. I mean, obviously you have decades, decades of experience. I wonder what you would say are maybe key tenets or rules or guidelines to have what you would consider healthy disagreement. Well, I mean, I, it, there's nothing wrong with disagreeing. I think we must keep an open mind and we must be careful not to judge people out because we disagree on one issue. You know, being human is much more than just one thing. So it, we have so much in common and often we'll focus in on the one thing where we disagree and that will keep us apart. But the 99 or 199 or 2,599 other things that we have in common, we're not going to take advantage of because of this one thing where we disagree. I mean, how does that make sense? That doesn't make sense to me. Do the math. It doesn't make sense. So I would encourage everyone to be open and sit down, even like I did once. I had a guy at work where I used to work. He and I had bad chemistry. You all know the situation. Sometimes you have bad chemistry with someone. And it may have started with a misunderstanding in the cafeteria or at a, on, a, on an all-hands meeting at work where he criticized something I said, and I got the impression that he was on my back, yeah, that he was on my case. I was new in the organization. He had been there for years. And he was very heavy 
on his knowledge in his field. Now, I'm, I was a practitioner. He was more of a theoretic person. We had some clashes. One day, it really got to shouting. And he ended up going into his office, slamming the door, you know, after we had yelled at each other. I took a deep breath. I realized all my frustration with all his crap that I had perceived as crap and criticism and not being supportive of my stuff. And I finally thought, but it, it's not going to change if I just sit here in my office boiling angry with this and he's in his office angry with me. Somebody has to do something. So I figured out I'm going to go talk to him. I'm going to calm down, take a deep breath. I'm going to go talk to him. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to apologize. Okay. I'm going to say, I'm sorry I yelled at you. I'm really sorry I yelled at you. And that's a good starting point. And maybe explain what made me so upset that I felt uh, I had to yell. And I got in there and he immediately accepted my apology and provided one back and said, you know what? That was really silly of me also. I apologize. Let's start over. Okay. So we've been in a bit of a opposition to each other for quite some time. But from that moment on, he was my best coworker. Out of the 35 people working in that secretariat, me, he and me, we had the best chemistry from then on in. We got over the hump. We rebuilt trust in each other. We showed each other vulnerability and respect by admitting to our mistakes, taking responsibility, and reaching out. And I think that kind of vulnerability takes courage from all of us. So if you make mistakes or you get off on the wrong foot, try to make yourself vulnerable. Try to come forward and be vulnerable. And if they then decide not to respect that, all right, then you got your, your hook to put your judgment on, don't you? That this person is not right for you for many reasons, probably. But at least you tried uh, to, to fix that, what was broken or never really worked properly from the beginning because of some misunderstanding. And you all know first impressions really do mean something. And often they last. So they matter whether we... Uh, we do something to change those first impressions. And sometimes we have to work hard at it. And, but it's worth it. It's worth it for all of us uh, to get another chance. Who does not want to have another chance? If I put you in a box thinking that you were a bad person, would you not want a chance to get out of that box and show to me that you're not a bad person? We all would. We all would want that chance. So think about this. Would you want a chance if you were the one that were misunderstood? Please give people the same chance to be unjudged that you would expect them to give you. If you fare out into the world with this mindset, you'll be all right. I wonder if you could just uh, maybe speak a little more about what you mentioned quite early on in the podcast about setting almost your level for kind of putting people aside higher. Almost that, like you said, some, some people we have, oh, he's a conservative or he voted for this party, so I don't really want to talk to them or I'm just going to limit the contact there. Yeah. And I wonder, could you maybe give some like a palpable example of that in the sense that, I don't know, do you think that you can be friends with someone or be on relatively okay, term, okay terms with people who maybe... Um, I don't know, in your mind, are a little homophobic or are a little sexist. Do you think we let's have say, a, let's say, we, let's our low is too, our bar is too low? Sorry. Great, great example, Jim, with, uh, with these value-based differences. Yeah. Somebody has, let me, let, let's say you had a friend and you found out about your friend that he was quite sexist. So I think that what, what's possible is 
that we find out that we're different in some way and we have values that maybe are in conflict or at least in, in some kind of opposition to each other. Like, for example, sexism is not okay and you feel that that's okay maybe in, in this given context. If you turn your back on your friend, is he going to change? Or will you try and talk to him? So, so looking at probability of impact, if you have a good relation with this person, you have a chance to influence this person to understand that his or her ways is not all right. And you can express that from a position of trust because you know that person, you have a friendship with them. And say, hey, what happened to you? When, when did this happen? That's not all right. Come on, man. You know, you can try and reason with them. If you turn your back on them, will they listen to you? Not anymore because you turned your back on them. So why should I listen to you? Wow. So it takes a whole village to raise a child and even an adult that maybe got some ideas wrong. And if you're a true friend, you'll try and tell your friend, not because you think that you're on the path of the righteous and the illuminate, but simply share your values for him to mirror in you and maybe find common ground. Maybe see, hey, that makes sense. I'm sorry I did that, Jim. I wasn't even thinking. I'm just being ridiculous and lazy in my head and using language which is not appropriate i didn't mean to offend maybe you'll get to the bottom of it but if you just heard him say it and you were like judged him like i'm not going to hang out with this guy anymore you must confront the person in a friendly manner and say hey i heard you say such are you serious because the way i heard it it sounded like you really meant like this and that would be a little disturbing and upsetting to me i mean i respect you you're a friend but why would you say things like this you know or if you know this about somebody and you come back to your high school reunion and you realize they're still like that, <laughs> then, you know, we can't save everybody. We can just try to communicate what we feel is right and then, well, then decide. I mean, obviously, I don't have a lot of racist people in my private social circles. I don't. Because when I'm having my social time with my friends and family and stuff, I don't want to be listening to people who want to fill my ear with intolerance or hate. But on the other hand, I am in family groups and networks of family where we have very different opinions, especially on immigration at some point. And we've had a lot of discussions over Christmas tables and other things about what's up and down here and how do I feel. We don't get into hostile waters, but we disagree. And so... Uh, you know, I can't tell anybody how to vote or what to think about others. I just think meet them first before you judge them too harsh. It's, give them a chance to show you, show them who you are, show you who they are, and then, then decide. Uh, and don't just believe what you heard from elsewhere. And when somebody steps out of form, like you mentioned, and especially somebody you know, I just don't believe in turning our backs. I believe we must try and, and educate and inform and communicate and have a dialogue. It's the same with some of the companies. Somebody asked me, because, you know, we get invited to an increasing amount of corporate uh, company context uh, activities where Heineken or Amstel or Intel or Microsoft or Masco or Tesco invite us to come and do something with them and work with their staff on their inclusion. And it's, um, it's often I'm asked by some of my books, well, Ronnie, is there a company we won't publish for? And I said, sure. I mean, there are companies that we probably would have a difficult time ethically 
working with them because of who they are in the world. But by far, the majority would be companies we would try and work with. And the reason is very simple. Whether we agree with the way they're in operation or not, whether we agree with what they're doing is in their business, we can't change them from standing outside yelling at them. We have to go inside and talk to them. So if we want the pharmaceutical industry to be better sensitized to the needs of the patients and the pricing policy and all that, dialogue is one way to approach them. You could also stand outside their factories and throw rocks at the gate or whatever protest and blockade or whatever you think is the right approach for you, a democratic approach. But I just don't believe that that's going to change them. I think they'll change if they can, you know, reason, if we can reason with them. So I'm still on the path of reasoning less than force and legislation. I'm trying to reason with people and make them see uh, what makes most sense. And I think uh, there is an increased awareness worldwide that diversity is a strength and that diverse organizations are competitive and, and actually innovative. So more and more of the global leaders are embracing this strategy, which means it will implement itself across the world gradually. It's unavoidable, uh, but it's going to take some time still. It's going to take a lot of work also, but it's coming. It's coming because it's the only sustainable way forward is to work together. So I see how these global organizations are doing that and bringing people from all around the world together in these teams. And I see that's what we as mankind need to do. We need to, in that way, imitate some of these structures and say, hey, let's work for a common goal across our differences. And that's the community. Now look at these challenges, for example, in the US with guns and these mass shootings. They have, you know, finally, you can talk about the legislation that was passed and how slim it may be, but finally, something came through, didn't it? Now, I'm keen to, sure, criticize this wasn't as aggressive measures as are needed to, to really do something about the shootings. But was this better than nothing? Yes. And is it a small step forward to see them agree to something bipartisan? Absolutely. And I'm happy with that. I'd rather have joy over that than be, you know, sad all day about what it could have been. Then try to embrace what, what happened and the positive of that situation. Make the best of it. Just like many of our books are doing. They were born. They were raised. They were living in, in conditions that were not optimal. Many of them not optimal. But they've made the best of it. And today, they're stronger for it in a way. And they're helping us build stronger communities, forge cohesion and understanding and empathy, leading by their example. Uh, the people who already paid the highest price are still leading. So, so I think in this way, there's a lot of hope because I think we have that universal common denominator. We all want to be understood. And if any of us see a chance to be understood, we're going to jump at the opportunity. We're going to jump at the opportunity. And that's what I see people doing jumping at the opportunity to be understood. And it goes for both readers and books. So we got a win-win situation in the library, but how do we draw in 7 billion people? Hmm. Big question. Still working on the answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like what you're talking about, Ronnie, specifically around almost the long-term approach to this, the sustainable approach where it's difficult initially, right? Your neighbor says some things that you quite disagree with and it's quite easy and you can get along with it 
uh, if you just don't really talk to your neighbour. But then there comes a point where you need to talk to your neighbour about the local road that needs fixing or mm. you know, all these things. And then it's harder. And I, I think it would be great to just re-emphasize this, the, the idea that it, like you can talk with this person that you disagree with and it may feel like there's no particular headway, but almost like you're talking about, you're actually laying down the foundations for potentially being understood and that that takes time and that you can't just go away and say, hey, you're wrong here and I'll tell you why you're wrong and then you, you'll come to my way of looking at the world. And it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, yeah, that's not right? going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen. The way it could happen is by you showing that you can accept the other person so that they you enter in a, in a circle of, of mutual understanding. Now, I meet some people with a high level of intolerance, especially towards Muslim. And I say to them, I understand why you're afraid. I understand, but do you ever, do you know any Muslim people? Have you ever been with any Muslim people, engaged with them socially, eaten dinner or been to their house or been friends with one? Never, you know? Most of the people who are most intolerant, it turns out have had no contact. They've had no contact with this group. They just heard about it in the media and they saw somebody on the street that they didn't like the way they looked or what they were doing or the shop they had or whatever silly. And that's it. They never really knew anyone. And I think if we all just would take the time to at least meet one from the group that we've decided not to include, to really just be sure that we have good valid reason for our decision, I think the world would be a tremendously much greater place because a lot of us would realize we made some bad judgments, a lot of bad judgments on people. And we shouldn't judge whole groups, we should judge individuals on their actions and how they behave. And so for that neighbor, I have a very important staff member in the UK. She's incredible. She's transgender. And her neighbor is a very vocal activist in the trans rights discussions, but on the other side of this staff member. They're neighbors, and they're in complete political opposition to each other. They're actually friends. They meet for dinner. And they have discussions about the disagreements. So I think if we're smart enough, we can actually appreciate the fact that we disagree with the other person and that we can have a qualified discussion and exchange about it. What it is we disagree, how we disagree. And I think once I understand why you believe what you believe, I'm more keen to accept your point of view. It's not going to become my point of view. But I'm more keen to understand also your right to have that point of view because democracy is about the right to disagree also, to have different opinions. And you may not like my opinion on everything, but you don't have to, but you must respect my right to have my opinion, just like I must respect your right and respect your right to live your life the way you want to, as long as it doesn't break the law or harm anybody. I'm in the same way. I just want to live my life. I'm not want to harm anybody, but I want the right to live the life that I want to live. And this is what this is about, it, giving each other the space to be ourselves and respect that. And surely there will always be, I mean, education has been an issue since man. So there will always be people who need more education, who need more information, who need to be cared for a little, to be held. They've been neglected somewhere, and so they built an animosity towards someone. Nobody held their hand and comforted them and included them. And so you'll notice that a lot of the people that often have uh, 
very strong feelings about other groups in the community. They're not exactly in the in the best place themselves, you see. They often come from a place of, of detriment and challenge. And so they they tend to point fingers at other groups in the community and go, well, it's their fault that we don't have a job, or it's their fault that that uh, the community schools are run down or there's crime in the neighborhood or whatever it is. So it's a tendency to also point fingers and blame others. And, and I think it's a natural thing that we, we don't like to look ourselves in the mirror, but it's the best starting point for change is looking at yourself and seeing what can you do to change the situation uh, and take responsibility. We, we're not good at that. We're good at pointing at others and try to give them the responsibility and make them responsible for the situation. But it won't change like that. It's going to change by we all taking responsibility for that change. Now, I really want to be, you know, able to fully understand and respect even the people I disagree with. And I wish they could do the same for me, because then we could respectfully agree to disagree. Mm. Ronnie, thanks so much for this. Yeah, sure. But obviously, if you behave in a way that is that is offensive to me, I will respond and say, you know, that's not proper behavior for me and if you and i are to have any kind of conversation you must respect those boundaries if you cannot we cannot converse can we so obviously we, we can't talk to every we can't be friends with everyone but at least try to understand even the people you don't like ronnie it's great that you say that because this podcast will actually be released um two weeks after our conversation with dr sari gilman who's an expert on boundaries and you you kind of summed it up beautifully there yeah um one thing i just wanted to close on because i think it would be a nice way to to end is that you obviously have a, a big uh, a big interview with a a, a a news station that you may disagree with politically and it would just be interesting to know is there something that you kind of tell yourself just before um embarking on this uh conversation that potentially might be difficult potentially might be triggering for you because you think oh no they're just saying that now and they're wrong about this is there something that you're going to tell yourself uh, when you're about to have this conversation that maybe some of the listeners could take on board sure i mean before the the concrete interview is looking to be an appearance on fox news in los angeles at the end of june for a program called good day la good day los angeles it's a morning show it's a very comfortable format. It's conversation. It's in the studio. It's got a great host. They're very friendly. And I'm not expecting a hostile environment or somebody to present politically outrageous visions in front of me. But if they do, I'll react. I am who I am. That's not going to change. But obviously, when I walk in there, I'm very, uh, I, I'm a tentative to be as neutral as humanly possible. I mean, not to go in and judge neither the people watching the show or the people interviewing me about my work or, or potentially even uh, what people be thinking about what I say. I'm, I'm keen to try and make everyone feel included and that there is opportunity for them. What I really ideally want them to realize is if they come down to our library, there's opportunity for change, for impact, or maybe just agreeing to disagree. But at least now you met the person, you understand their point of view. And you agree to disagree. It's just, it's the human way to find a path forward rather than sitting behind our screens, yelling at each other, being keyboard warriors uh, and talking badly about each other, but never with each other. So I go on Fox News in the hope to reach the hearts and minds of, of people that watch the Fox News. And I don't judge them. 
I'm told who they are by other media who have their idea about judging them, but I'm not to judge them. I'm there to help them unjudge someone. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed. Thanks, Ronnie. Uh, we always close by asking our guests how do they take care of their own mental health. We'd love to hear about that from you. Well, I've been in a bad situation about nine years ago when my wife suddenly died. We're on a vacation in Spain with the children and then her heart valve collapsed out in the balcony. She was 37 years old when she passed. Uh, I healed myself over the next three years. Combination of doing things that made me feel really good. Uh, some had something to do with intimacy. Some had something to do with coming out and being, you know, culture, music, under the skies, the open skies and the sunshine helped me heal my mental health. I smoked a couple of pot joints as well, surely helped too. Uh, I'm not taking any meds or anything, but I, I do suspect that I have somewhat of an ADHD activity going on in my brain because there is a lot of stuff going on at the same time. I'm on top of it, but uh, but there is, there is high speed in there. And um, how do I stay healthy? I appreciate the little things. I take joy in a glass of cold water and I'll be in the moment to savor it when I'm drinking it. And I'll savor as much as I can from every day. I'm not waiting for the big highlights. I'm not looking, sure I'll look forward to whatever, but I'm not waiting for that. I'm happy every day. And I try to find things that give me joy. Something my child said, something my daughter asked me to do, or something that happened on the street that I amused about. So after she died, I feel I'm enormously much more present in the actual presence of life because I wasn't before. But since then, I'm noticing everything around me. All the, I'm highly attentive. I'm, I'm, much, I'm much ado about today and not so much about tomorrow. Uh, so living the life, honestly. And then, you know, little rum and coke here and there. Help you too, isn't it? But, uh, but that's what I'll do. And I went many years to the psychologist to, uh, to work on my anger because it wasn't fair what happened to us. Now, I was distraught by the doctors having failed us after monitoring her heart for 27 years, and then she drops dead like that before getting a new heart valve. That was, that was discouraging for the Danish healthcare system, and, and I was a bit upset for a long time. But these conversations with my therapist really helped me process the emotions of the injustice that happened and forgive the people for their mistakes. They didn't mean us no harm. They didn't mean her. No harm, they just were not skilled enough in the situation. And that is my judgment. I reserve the right to, to pass that. Because I figure if they were skilled enough, she would still be alive. All right. You guys stay safe. Thank you for sharing that with us, Ronnie. And uh, thank you for, for giving us your time. You've been really generous. The passion's come through. The energy's come through. Um I hope it all goes well in America. I hope hopefully we can see the human library on, on the television soon. Um, but thank you for giving us this time to the Earthy Lights podcast. We really, really appreciate it.
Thank you. Thanks, guys. Well, it was it was Thanks great questions. I love the intimacy of this podcast. I somehow it seemed uh, we were much closer to each other than we actually were. So I appreciate that making me feel so comfortable here on the show with you guys. I hope the listeners will benefit and that they join us online one day for an opportunity to unjudge someone. For sure. We'll Thanks put all so of the friend. links in uh, in the show notes. So for anyone who's got you know even more queries and wants to find out some more about Ronnie or about the Human Library, all the information will be in the show notes and you guys can find it there. Um, but for the meantime, thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Appreciate it.